Hey guys, and thanks for checking out this episode of the John Campia Show podcast, the audio-only version of the John Campia Show on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Monday, August the 3rd, 2020, titled Lord of the Rings series brings back Galadriel, Elrond, and Sauron. We're glad that you're joining us today, guys. And remember, you can also get a commenter question on the live questions part of the show by simply going to the link in the description of this video. That's streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll be getting your commenter question on the show and you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And for now, let's get to the episode. Rob, December 18th is a date that I know you have very firmly planted in your mind because it is, as of right now, at any rate, it is, as of right now, the launch date, the release date for Denis Villeneuve's new take on Dune. Now, of course, whether or not Dune is actually going to make that release date, that's still up in the air right now. I mean, we're supposed to get Tenant at the end of August internationally and at the beginning of September in whichever theaters are open in the U.S. We'll see if that actually happens or not. December is still a little bit of a ways away, but still a little bit of a question mark. Well, assuming that for a moment, Tenant is able, indeed, to release on time where it's going on December 18th. There may be another problem, Rob. Oh, and no. that problem, according to Denis Villeneuve, is the lockdown has caused some issues for him. And he says right now it's basically going to be a sprint to the finish line for him. He, he was talking recently at, uh, at an event and he said, yeah, it's going to be a race. Now, let me just read the first little bit. This comes to us from IndieWire who writes, Denis Villeneuve's Dune is still on track for a December 18th release later this year from Warner Brothers, but it's a barrel to the finish line, according to the director. In a new Montreal-based interview promoting the Shanghai International Film Festival, Villeneuve spoke about how the pandemic has crushed the movie's editing schedule. While production mostly wrapped before the quarantine hit, Villeneuve had been planning reshoots that were ultimately challenged by the shutdown of filming. Uh, check out the video below. We'll skip on that. Then Denis Villeneuve says, I was planning to go back and shoot some elements later because I wanted to readjust the movie. I needed time. At the time, I didn't know that there would be a pandemic as we were about to go back to do those elements, he said. The impact was that it crushed my schedule right now. It will be a sprint to the finish uh, to finish the movie on time right now because we were allowed to go back to shoot those elements in a few weeks. It meant also that I'd have to finish some elements of the movie like VFX and the editing being in Montreal as my crew stayed in Los Angeles. Rob, listen, we've known for other reasons for a while now that there is a potential set of problems of Dune making that December 18th release date just because of the situation in the world. Yeah. I still think there's a fairly decent chance it makes its release date being still December. What are we in August now? September, October, November. It's still four months away. There's still a decent chance that maybe it could make it anyway, but that may not ultimately be the issue. The issue may be the four or five months that Denis Villeneuve have already lost, and he just simply may not have enough time to get there. Rob, let me ask you two separate questions here. Number one, do you think Denis can get this done on time? Question number two, let's say Denis doesn't feel he can get it done on time. Do you think Warner Brothers will just say to him, listen, we need to get content out, do the best you can, and let's release this thing, Or do you think, because we already think what you've got is great, whatever. Or do you think they go, okay, you need another month. You need another two months. We'll give you a few more months. So do you think he can make it? And if not, do you think they give him the time 
to really breathe a little bit and get it done? Or do you think they tell him just, hey, just do the best you can? What do you think is going to happen here? Well, I, you know, I watched that whole hour long interview and I suggest anybody who's interested in Dune or Denis Villeneuve should watch it because it's a really fascinating interview. And he said something about he can't edit remotely. And mm. one of the things I, I've been doing some editorial with this show I've been working on, this animated show I'm working on for Netflix, and we've been doing remote editing via Zoom, sharing screens and things like that. But he said it's really hard because you you feed off of the energy. And he made he made a joke. He said, you know, my editor is like my psychiatrist and he deals with all my insecurities and how I feel about the movie, if it's good or if it's bad. I mean, he's he's the one right there dealing with it. And he's Villeneuve's got a point. I mean, there is an energy that it, it happens between a director and an editor in a room that is incredibly creative. And the fact that he doesn't have that, uh, I, it gave me pause. I'm like, man, uh, I bet even when you're editing remotely, it, 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 you're, you're getting half the work done. So there was that. And two, I think that if he doesn't have the movie exactly the way he wants it, I don't think Warner Brothers would release it. At this point, last year, I would say, no, they'd be locked into locked into a release date. But now with these large tent poles all being pushed, I just don't think I mean, a, a movie that's this important, that's this expensive, that has this much writing on it. The Benny Gesserit Sisterhood TV series, a potential film series. They're not going to half ass this. They're going to wait until it's it's great. Now, maybe he will be able to hold on to that release date. Um, but I don't think they're going to compromise the movie. I think they're only going to release it if it's great. And if they need more time any other year, I'd say, John, nope, they're going to release it on December 18th. But this year, dude, you know what? If giant city destroyers showed up like independence day style over all the cities of the world, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bat an eye. I'm like, well, 2020. <laughs> uh, and I, I, I think that we're in a world where who knows what's going to happen, but I really don't think they're going to compromise the, the creativity and the work and the money that they put into this film. Hopefully it'll come out. They've got four months, like you said, but if it's not ready, it's like, uh, what is it? Paul Masson wine that Orson Welles, we will sell no wine before it's mm, time. It's time yeah. uh, you know, the spice must flow, but only if it's good to go. You know what? <laughs> you got to make that into a T-shirt, by Boy, the way. Boy, that's terrible. I, I'm going to take the exact opposite um, position as you for the exact opposite reasoning. You see, I I would almost feel like if it was a year ago, I would think Warner Brothers would say, ah, let's delay. It's, it, it's fine. Let's delay. I think today might be a little bit different because they have gone so long without being able to release any product. I think well, they're true. very desperate to release product. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying that I think if Denis comes to them and says, hey, guys, I'm only 70% of where I want to be. I, I don't think they said, screw it, whatever. But I think if he comes right. back and he says, look, I've been rushing to the deadline. I feel like I'm like 95% there. I think if we're within those kind of margins, then I think Warner Brothers goes, you know what? 5% versus needing us to delay another three months. We'll take Denis Villeneuve's 95% over 80% of the other directors at 100%. So let's just go. I think it depends on how close to finish he is. You know, if he's like 70% there, I think they say, okay, then we need to delay. I think if he's like 90% there, 95% there, I think they go, you know what? 5% is unfortunate, but wait against three more months of delay when we haven't been able to release anything forever and we're in a position right now that we can release it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I mean, think they do. 
I, I, I think that's a very good point, and I think you're right about that. Like you said, they do have four months, and I think he knows right now whether he's going to be done or not, even though he mm. says it's a race to the finish line. You're a good point. I, they know. I mean, they already know if they really need these reshoots or maybe they're going to use the stagecraft technology that they use for The Mandalorian. I mean, who knows what they're doing, but they know. And I, I do think, though, that, like you said, I mean, Tenet, I think Tenet is going to teach the entire film industry a lesson. And that lesson's either going to be a good lesson or a bad lesson. And and we'll see <laughs> if it does, in fact, come out. I mean, we're John, it's supposed to be released internationally on August 26th. Tenet. You know, yeah. we're 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 20 less. We're less than four weeks away. We'll see if it happens. I mean, what do you think? You think when well, that's a Warner Brothers movie? Yeah, it'll get. I think it'll get its international release. I, I don't know if they'll open in all seventy countries that they say they're going to open in seventy, but I think they're going right. to open whichever markets are uh, available to them. The bigger question becomes that September third North America date. Do they actually meet that? And, and we're going to have to wait and see. But you're right, Rob. I think Tenet is going to kind of set a little bit of a litmus test for everything going on, including for Dune. The question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Do you think Denis can get this thing to the finish line on time? If not, but he's really close. Do you think uh, Warner Brothers says, hey, we got to release that in this day and age right now. If it's close, we got to release it. Or do you think they go, well, you know what? Let's delay it a little bit. Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move into our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here on the John Campy Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them by going anytime, 24-7, over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your topic or question featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, let's get into main topic number one, shall we? And the first main topic today gets submitted to us by Joanne Donson. I like what you did there. Writes, hey, John, you've probably had a chance to watch all of Umbrella Academy season two. I did. I binged it all in one day. Uh, that ending. What were your thoughts on the season? Did you like it better than the first? How long do you think it will be before we get a third season? Thank you, P.S. Please do an open spoiler discussion for Umbrella Academy season two. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And I might. I, I might give it like another week and then do it a full open. Maybe next this coming weekend, we'll do one, give everybody a chance to get caught up and then maybe we'll do it and have a full open discussion, not guaranteeing it, but maybe we will. Um, Rob, I don't know if you've, did you have a chance? I know you've been looking forward to it, but it just came out. Did you have a chance to watch Umbrella Academy season two? I've watched three episodes. Okay. So you've watched three episodes. So I'm not going to give away any big spoilers here. I, I'm not going to give don't. away any. No, no. I'm nope. loving it. I'm loving it. I'm not going to give away any big massive spoilers or anything like that, but I, I will say this. Now, on open mic this weekend, I mentioned to everybody a couple things. Number one, I loved the season. I, I loved, loved, loved this season of Umbrella Academy. Uh, thing number two, I liked it more than season one. By the end of season two, I, I liked it even more than season wow. one. Wow. Uh, but I also mentioned, I said, I'm not going to tell you all the things I loved about it, but I'm going to tell you a couple of my nitpicks. And here, are, here were my couple of nitpicks that I had about this. Again, this isn't really spoiling a whole ton for you guys. Nitpick number one, and Rob, you've probably already picked up on this just being three episodes in. It's like, okay, the, the family has to unite to stop an Armageddon. 
Didn't we already do that in season one? Now, yeah. now, granted, they creatively do some creative stuff with that that kind of alleviates it. But still, that was kind of weighing on my head a little bit for, for the first bit. Nitpick number two, and there's really not many. But when you look at guys like uh, Luther and Klaus, right? I, I wanted to see more because in that opening scene of season two, you get to see Klaus you know, unleash the army of the dead on people. You can see Luther jump in front of a rocket launcher and take a rocket launcher full force to his back and just go, you know, very Hulk-like. Didn't get a lot of opportunity in season two to see them in action per se. Like a lot of great Klaus and Luther stuff, a lot of great Klaus and Luther stuff, but not a lot of them in action. You know what I mean? So that was a little bit of a nitpick of mine, but, but whatever. My third little nitpick was... There's a character you see in the trailer called AJ. That's the new head of the commission who's got a fishbowl for a head and a goldfish mm. in there. Oh, I knew nothing about AJ. I want, by by the time this show ended, I wanted there to have been more AJ. I really like that <laughs> character. And I, I wanted more of them. So anyway, those, those are some of my nitpicks. Rob, one of the first things that stood out to me, though, I, listen, you got to understand, this show was finished shooting before the pandemic, before uh, the, the, uh, the the writing and, and all the stuff that came up as a result of social injustice and blah, all that, this show was done shooting before that. Rob, it felt like they just wrote it last month. I know. It, it is so timely and applicable right now that seriously feels like they just wrote it last month to go with yep. our times. But when you guys do watch it, you got to keep in mind they made this before all this stuff kind of came out and it was great both involving they found a great way to involve great historical events like the assassination of JFK in with the the idea of the um, civil rights movement in the early 1960s and they did it in a way that to me never felt heavy handed it felt like it revisited and, and, and it's weird to think Rob because you know, a lot of us, a lot of times we like to think of some things in our history as being ancient history. I'm watching this stuff going on and I'm like, my mom and dad were young adults when this was happening. Th these yeah. horrors, the, I, I'm not going to use any other word, horrors of what we as a culture and society were, these horrors were not that long ago. We're not that long ago. And the way they engaged that, yet never made it feel like the show was about that. They were still, the show always kept its focus on the big thing here. They got to figure out what causes the next apocalypse and they got to stop that apocalypse. And they never lost focus on that. The way they do the intermingling with the different timelines is great. They bring, again, five pretty much steals the show for me. I right. thought five pretty much stole the show in season one. He pretty much steals the show again. That kid, that kid is such a good actor. Oh my God. He's so good. Cause I, when I watch that kid, Rob, I am completely convinced I'm watching a 71 year old man in the body of a 13 year old. I'm yeah. convinced of it. He convinces me of that. I thought that was great. The stuff they did with the various interrelationships, the Klaus stuff in this season is great the ben you haven't even gotten to the ben stuff yet uh rob but the ben stuff is great um looking back and stuff with their father is great 
and then the ending. And I, again, I'm not going to give anything away, but the ending is primo. And by the way, Rob, you know, I've been talking a little bit lately about uh, Warrior Nun and Cursed, like right. shows on Netflix, where I've been really critical of the way that they just kind of ended their seasons without anything being resolved. And I always point to like Supernatural and saying Supernatural is one of the great examples of how you do a season, wrap up everything in the story of that season at the end, and then leave a little bit to introduce what the next season will be about. So you bring everything to culmination and you still introduce what the next season is going to be about. This, well, first of all, last season of Umbrella Academy did that. This season of Umbrella Academy does it even better. You know, they 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 bring the story to a conclusion and they do a great job introducing what's to come in season three all at the same time. So as a viewer felt satisfied watching it through to the end and I felt the anticipation of what was to come next. Rob, you've only had a chance to watch three episodes so far, but what's your general impression of it so far? Well, you know, I... I love this show. I loved the first season. You know, I own the comics and and I I love first of all the the cast the casting of all the characters is great. I really love the family and all the peripheral characters and I love the way the show looks. It has it has a different look to any other show on TV really. I, I it's hard to pinpoint what it is, but <clears throat> I would say a texture and it's just so much damn fun to watch. And I I love it. The only reason I didn't binge more is because I was working this weekend. And I kept going back and watching like, oh, I gotta watch I watched 20 minutes here and 15 minutes there. And and I I I I wanna sit down and watch the whole thing, but I I I couldn't. And I, I it feels like a drug to me. I'm like, I need to do more. I need to do more of it, John. More Umbrella Academy. Uh, so I'm really, it's, I, I love it. Love it. And like yeah. you said, I was really surprised. Like in the beginning, you find out a certain character is, is married and they weave in the idea of the civil rights movement in a very natural way. Like, of course, because it, it's, it's because the time period and what's going on. And, and I, I loved all that. I thought it was, it was really, really great. Yeah, and and by the way, I, I, Rob, you can already tell from where you're at, it's a violent season. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of violence, uh, including something is coming with five. That is going to be one of the, the talked about scenes once everybody talks. Anyway, guys, uh, I clearly love this show. Questions for you guys. Have you guys had a chance to watch Umbrella Academy Season 2? If not, I highly recommend you jump on it. If you have, jump down to the comment section and let us know what you've thought of it so far. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Benjamin Hoffman, who writes, Hey, John, Sonic did some pretty de did pretty decent at the box office when it came out, but it was hardly a blockbuster. Eh, that's fair. I remember a lot of people saying it would have been much bigger if it had opened in China. Well... It just did open in China, and it only managed to come in sixth place at the box office behind films like Doolittle, which made almost three times as much, and the Inception re-release. Does this end the debate that Sonic would have been, quote-unquote, huge if it had opened in China? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes... You know, the Chinese theaters opened up again. They've been open for a little bit. Last week, they opened Doolittle. 
actually opened. This was Doolittle's second weekend open. Uh, last weekend, it opened at number one spot, made about $4 million or something like that. They had about 60% of the theaters open, limited capacity, just trying to get the ball rolling and all that kind of stuff. So Doolittle open. Now, yes, Sonic, which is a movie that ended up being much better than I thought it had any business being. Uh, I ended up quite enjoying uh, Sonic, as a matter of fact. I, I, I had fun with it. I don't think I didn't think the movie was great, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I had some fun watching Sonic, and that me and my wife have both gotten and watched it at home again. Like we we even actually Anne really likes the film, Anne really likes Sonic, and you know what? It didn't do bad considering the budget for it and everything, and it made a little bit of money. I think it made around four hundred. Million, if I'm not mistaken. Let, let me bring up here. I didn't have this number handy. Um, let me look up the Sonic box office. Sonic made... Okay, I stay, sorry. I stand corrected. $306 million, not $400. $306 million Sonic the Hedgehog made at the worldwide box office. Not great, but, but pretty decent and certainly enough to at least be somewhat profitable. Now, you're right. The questions then started coming in when you would talk about Sonic making that much money at the box office, a lot of people would jump and say, well, it didn't open in China. And if it had done in China, it would have made another 150, 200 million, whatever. And one of the things I've always kind of said is you got to remember, most movies don't open in China. Like, remember, China only allows so many North American movies to open in China per year. There's a limited amount that they allow to open in China per year. So most films don't get a Chinese release. So there's that. But I also caution people, and I said at the time, I, I think you got to be careful assuming that if Sonic opened in China, just automatically that would have meant another hundred, another two hundred million dollars added to its box office. Case in point, it did open up. Now listen, obviously they're just China is just getting their box office and their theaters open again. Obviously, there's still everybody's dealing with the repercussions of the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. We obviously do not assume that we're going to see the box office numbers that it would have got. If it opened in January before the pandemic hit, obviously not, but we can measure a little bit depending on where the film falls in relation to how other films are doing. Now, this, these are numbers according to Variety that wrote in that this past weekend, the number one film at the box office this weekend in China was Enigma of Arrival. That's a Chinese film that made 3.34 million. Doolittle, that terrible Robert Downey Jr. film. That is in its second weekend in China, made 3.6. The Interstellar re-release made 2.84. Shepherd without a uh, Shepherd without a Shepherd, uh, odd name for a thing, uh, which is another Chinese film, which was a re-release at 2.2 million dollars. A Chinese animated film called Mr. Meow made 1.42 million, and Sonic in its opening weekend in China made 1.27 million. Now, I, I, just a side note here, Hollywood Reporter is saying that the top two films were actually flipped. The Hollywood Reporter is saying Doolittle actually beat out Enigma of Arrival, whereas Variety is saying Enigma of Arrival. So there, there could be some discrepancy there at the top two spots, but both of the outlets say that Sonic came out in sixth place. I, I think, you know, in asking the question, do I think this settles that issue? about whether or not Sonic would have been like some massive hit in China had it opened at the same time. I think that settles that. No, it wasn't going to be a massive Chinese hit. If it's opening now and falling behind an interstellar re-release and falling almost three times behind Doolittle in its second weekend, 
I, now, would it have made more than $1.24 million if it had opened in January? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe 10 times as much if it had opened in January as opposed to that. Absolutely would have made significantly more. But I, I think the numbers kind of prove out that Sonic wasn't going to be a massive hit. And if it had opened in China, instead of $300 million, it would have made $500 million worldwide. I think this puts that to bed. You got to remember, there are a couple of other asterisks you got to put there. For example, Rob, this is a movie that opened in North America ages ago, right? So you got to assume that there's a number of people in China that maybe would have gone to see it and have pirated it already. I mean, a lot of people in the world have probably pirated this already. So you got to take yeah. that into account as well. But the same can then be said of Doolittle. The same can be said of Doolittle, and yet it's still outpaced almost three to one Sonic. The same can be said of Interstellar, where you don't even need to pirate Interstellar. Everybody's got Interstellar, and yet more people went out to go see it than this. Again, this doesn't take away from the fact that I think Sonic the Hedgehog, this movie, ended up being better than I thought it would be, and it's still an enjoyable film. And at the end of the day, it was still profitable, and that all that all that's all that matters. And they're moving forward. They're going to make a sequel. They've already greenlit it. So I don't think it's a big surprise that it hasn't done well in China. I do think it puts that debate to bed, but I think at the end of the day, it's okay because it's not like Sonic needed China to go from a money loser to a money maker. Right. It, not a ton, but it made money. And I don't think there's any reason that the folks at the studio shouldn't guess that if we make another one, it might even make more money because the word of mouth on Sonic's been pretty good. It deservedly so. Anyway, Rob, you see these. Are you surprised by these numbers? And what do you think some of these like asterisks are? No, I mean, look, in the case of Sonic, it's already out on home video. Uh, like you said, it, it's something people could see if they want to. And uh, I think it was a day and date film. I think it would have done much better in China. But like you said, it already earned out. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a modest hit, certainly successful. And this, this isn't surprising at all. Uh, I was surprised at how much Interstellar made in China this weekend. I mean, Me too. It's, uh, yeah, you look at that and you're like, wow, that's impressive. And I think the real story is, is you know, when I was growing up, John, they used to re-release movies in theaters. I mean, they did with Star Wars, the Disney movies, and that kind of went away. But it's really interesting to see, like, during this pandemic that when these theaters open, like, I'm like, dude, I would go back to the movie theater and watch Inception again. Like, if I could see that shit in IMAX, I'd do it. Because <laughs> I didn't see it in IMAX before. I, 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 and I like the idea that people are going back to movie theaters. And China China proves it. I mean, they're playing they're playing old movies and people are going to see them. And I, I, I find that really interesting. It's, it, and it's I would have thought Sonic, actually, to be honest, would have done a little better in China. But I think it's because a lot of people who really wanted to see it have already seen it. But, but the numbers weren't that surprising to me. Uh, I agree. And I think, and you're right, it is surprising to see how many people are going back out to see Interstellar. I'm curious to see how it's going to do with its North American re-release, if they actually hit it. I, I think they will re-release it in whichever. I might have to go. I mean, I, I if I can go see it in IMAX with that Dune trailer, come on. We may have to take a road trip. We may have to yeah, like I literally we, like maybe drive to Nevada or something to go see yeah, it to a theater I that's know, open. I don't think they're going to be playing it here. I, I, I agree. I mean, I hope hope they can, but I agree. I, I don't think they're going to be playing it in California, but maybe they will somewhere else. Question is for you guys. What do you make of these numbers coming out of China? Are you like, hey, yeah, it didn't do all that great in China. No big deal. It already made its nut. Or maybe you're thinking, wow, I really thought it would have done better in China. Whichever. What do you guys think about this? Jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. 
With all that down, let's move into main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Terry Buchanan, who writes, I think Pineapple Express is one of the top five greatest comedies of all time. I know a few people that would agree with you, Terry. I have heard, uh, I, I have a hard time thinking of many other movies that made me laugh as hard. Did you see the story that Sony turned down doing a sequel to it, even though Judd Apatow really wanted to do it, just because of a few million dollars in budget? I get if they were $50 million off, but Apatow just wanted like $5 million more. Isn't that a little short-sighted on Sony's part? We couldn't get a sequel just because of $5 million? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, Terry. And yeah, what Terry is talking about is a story that came out, you know, that Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen kind of confirmed all this, talking about how the comedy Pineapple Express that uh, they had done. By the way, I'm going to fully admit right up front, I'm not the biggest fan of Pineapple Express. Like, I love a lot of stuff that Seth Rogen and... Um, uh, and uh, James Franco do, particularly the stuff they do together. But what if, for whatever reason, Pineapple Express really wasn't my my cup of tea. I liked it. I, I just didn't love it as much as most people did. But anyway, yeah, they were looking at doing another one. Apatow, as a matter of fact, Apatow, this was taken from an email that Apatow sent to Sony saying, I am so glad we are so close to getting Pineapple Express too. Now, this is obviously a while ago. I'm so glad that we are so close to getting Pineapple Express 2 figured out. I am very excited to make this uh, this thing real. We are very inspired creatively on this one. I am sure Pineapple Express 2 will do even better. Marijuana is so popular right now. It's on every corner. So that, that came to us. That came from Judd Apatow talking about it. But of course, Pineapple Express 2 never happened. It, it, it never did happen. As a matter of fact, and the main reason that didn't happen, and Seth Rogen confirmed this, was because basically, here's the story. The first movie made about $102 million at the box office on a $27 million budget, okay? So what happened was, according to reports, is that Apatow wanted $50 million to make the sequel. The studio was willing to put up $45 million on it only separated by five million dollars is that as as terry i believe was the person who asked the question as terry put out is that short-sighted that this whole film project a sequel to pineapple express fell apart all because of five million dollars yes yes it is and you know what it's not that crazy let's take a look at this for a second let's step step into uh the classroom for a second if you will Okay, so here we've got the movie for Pineapple Express had a budget of $27 million. The word I'm hearing is that the marketing budget on it was around 30. It may have been a bit more, may have been a bit less, but the number I generally keep coming, uh, coming to when I look around at it is around $30 million. Okay, so you're looking at a film that ultimately cost $57 million to make, right? So what do you have to do? To figure out what the break point uh, the breaking even point is you take the total. You remember we covered this the other day, guys. You take the total cost of budget and marketing. You multiply it by 1.5, and that's how you figure out how much money you need to make in order to break even. And that left them at needing 85.5 million dollars. Well, guess what? The film made 102, 102, 103. It made them a good 15 million in profit 
They made money on this thing. Yay. Okay. But here's the problem. So it made $102 million. You got to keep that in mind. It made $102 million at the box office. That's how much they made on that film. So let's take a look now at a new reality. Let's say they did it for what Sony wanted to do it for, which is a new one at $45 million. Let's also say they just stick with the same marketing budget. They would probably spend more on marketing the second time around, but let's say for argument's sake, they stay with a marketing budget of $30 million. Okay, so now you have a total of $75 million, right? So what do we do? We got to take the total, multiply it by 1.5, and that's our break-even mark. And if we do that, and I'm, forgive me as I go over to a calculator here, so 75 times 1.5, you end up needing, Sony needs to make $112 million, 112.5. Now that's 10 million more than the last film made. So now you're in a position that you need to make 10 million more than the last film made just to break even. Now, remember, we're not talking about a movie that made 500 million at the box office. So you can swing it like 40, 50 million dollars either way. This was a film that made 102. So its margins are small. And Sony agreeing to do one for 45 million dollars means they got to make about 10 million dollars more. Okay, well, let's look at this differently now. Let's say that they gave it what Apatow wanted, right? And Apatow wanted 50. Well, now we're talking about a total budget of 80. And now instead of 112 million, you need 120 million now just to break even. That's how much of a difference that $5 million makes. You went from roughly needing about 10 million more than the first one made in its entirety just to break even. Now suddenly you need almost 20 million more than the first one made just to break even. And Rob, what I have found is a lot of people believe that oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like studios don't care if they lose a couple of million dollars, a couple of million dollars. <laughs> yes, it is. Like the, we we have this perception as film fans that, oh, a studio, oh, they don't care if they lose $3 million on something. Yes, they do. Sure they do. Very, very much as a matter of fact. You know, $3 million is a lot of cash, man. It's an awful lot of cash. So it, it puts them in a position of, okay, we can make money if we make just a little bit more or we're going to have to make like 20 like 20% 20 more than the first one made just to break even. Hey Judd, can we do it for 45? Can you can you just shave I know you want 50, which is almost double what we gave you for the last one. Can you shave that down to 45? We'll feel a hell of a lot more comfortable about our prospects of breaking even and making a little bit of money, if you can get that down to 45 and they weren't able to do it, Seth Rogen actually came out and said something very funny about it. Um, this is what he said. Let me see if I can find this properly. Um, here, here's what he said. This is what Seth Rogen said. He said, I think we probably wanted too much money, talking about the $50 million to make it. I think we probably wanted too much money. Studios, they don't like giving away money. Weird thing. <laughs> So I love what I love what Seth Rogen had to say there about that. And so ultimately, even though it does sound ridiculous that they couldn't get this movie made over a five million dollar difference in what the producers wanted versus what the studio wanted to put up, 
when you actually look at what that works out to in real world economics, you can kind of understand where Sony was coming from. And I actually put the onus and I love Judd Apatow. I kind of put the onus on Apatow. It's like, dude, you made the last one for 27. Why couldn't you just shave 5 million off, make this one from 45 million and get this thing done? Anyway, Rob, you take a look at this uh, whole situation. Are you surprised they weren't able to get together on a number and make this thing happen? And was 5 million worth it either making or breaking the movie? How do you see it? First of all, why does a Pineapple Express movie have to cost anywhere near $50 million? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's I mean, true. I, I, you think about it like, really? Uh, give me a break. Uh, the fact that they couldn't bring it down to $45 million for a Pineapple Express film, to me, that just says people wouldn't, weren't going to come down on their fees and they were just uh, – I mean, it's not like that movie has lots of special effects. It's not like it's the Blues Brothers with amazing uh, a bunch of car crashes or something. I don't understand why a movie like Pineapple Express would co cost anywhere near that much money. And and I think that the responsible thing is imagine John, if you wanted to make a movie for 50 million dollars and the studio said, "Well, we're not going to give you 50, we'll give you 45." I think you'd figure out a way to make it work. <laughs> yep. I, I I mean, I know I would. Uh, if a studio goes, yeah, we'll give you 45 million. The fact that they offered that and they weren't able to make it work shows me that somebody dropped the ball, dropped the ball in a big way, unless they really didn't want to make the film. I mean, uh, if the will was there, you would, gosh, I'm sorry. I mean, oh, what a hardship, not 50 million. We have to make it for 45, a sequel to pineapple express. It's not like it's avatar two. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Really? I mean, the only thing I can think of is what if their idea for it was like their, their weed was so good, literally aliens come down to earth looking for it. And they, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but speaking of aliens, so Rob, your point is so well made because you look at something like district nine. I know I always go back to district nine on this district nine, super visual effects, heavy thing. They made that thing for like $30 million. Yeah. And, and like you're talking pineapple express, it's dudes in rooms getting stoned and talking to each other. Like how expensive can it be? I mean, unless you're going to what go shoot in India on the streets of Mumbai or something. I mean, I, 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 what, I, I don't know. You know, one of the ah. things I really like about Seth Rogen is he's not just funny on screen. He seems to have a really good sense about the business, and he also seems very self-aware. And I love what he said in that comment. He said, yeah, I uh, I think we probably asked him for too much money. Go figure. Studios don't like to give away money. I, I love yeah. his the self-awareness in that, too. So, Well, he's been producing a lot of TV, too. And yes. and you have to be budgetarily conscious when you're when you're making television. And and I, it, it, it amaz when I hear something like that, the difference between 45 and 50 million on a movie like Pineapple Express 2, you know, I, I don't understand it. <laughs> it's it's going to be a question mark. Question is for you guys. What do you think about this? Did you really want a Pineapple Express 2? I didn't love the first one, but I would have been down for a second one. Do you think it's reasonable that Sony held the line saying, look, we'll give you 45 million over the 27. We won't give you 50. Do you think it's reasonable that Judd Apatow thought, nah, man, we need 50 to make the movie we want to make. I don't know. How do you guys see it? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by 
Frank Frank Skywalker, the lesser known Skywalker, Frank, uh, Frank Skywalker writes, hey, John, just saw a report that confirms that the new Lord of the Rings series coming to Amazon will feature characters like Gladriel, Elrond and Sauron. This is incredible news. Do you think they'll be able to get actors like Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving back? How big of a role do you think they'll play in the series? Big cameo. And how excited are you for the new show? Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And listen, my degree of excitement for this Lord of the Rings series, I honestly, oh boy, it's for a new show. It's been a long time since I've been this excited for a new show. Like I've been a little bit more excited for seasons two or seasons three of shows I already know I love. But as far as my excitement level for a new show, it's hard to come up with a bunch of names that I'm not as excited about as Lord of the Rings, especially when you go and you look at all the people they've got behind the scenes, including the the concept designer from all the original films. You had for season one, uh, this dude, I'm forgetting his last name. It starts with an S, but this dude who's like a, a historical authority on all things Tolkien. And he was kind of like their supervisor for for developing uh, season one to make sure everything fit in the right place for season one. Their writer's room for season one was absolutely incredible. You got J.A. Bayona coming in to direct the first couple of episodes. There is nothing about this that I don't find incredibly exciting. I am super stoked. Now, this whole thing about Galadriel and, and that this comes from, by the way, you said it's now confirmed. It's not confirmed because I haven't seen anybody at Amazon confirm this. But where this comes from is a place called theonering.net. For those of you who have not heard of theonering.net, theonering.net is basically the most authoritative um, site. It has been ever since the original Lord of the Rings movies. The definitive, most authoritative website, independent website when it comes to all things Lord of the Rings. It's them. And so we got to be cautious to say this is not confirmed because they aren't the official source. But when it comes to Lord of the Rings, they're pretty reliable. So we'll see what happens. But this is anyway what they're saying. They put this out in a tweet, theonering.net. They wrote, Lord of the Rings, uh, San Diego Comic-Con update. J.A. Biona is currently filming in New Zealand. So we do we knew that already. They were up, they're up and shooting. This show is now in production. Filming in New Zealand, the biggest production in the world to resume filming post-COVID. Uh, new New Zealand cast have been added. More New Zealand crew than any production ever. Listen to that. Remember, they shot Lord of the Rings in New Zealand, and they're saying they have more crew for this show than they've ever had for anything that's shot in New Zealand. Galadriel, this is the key part. Galadriel, Elrond, and Sauron, all confirmed. Cast has a tighter bond than ever, they write. Okay, so they're saying all this stuff is there, and it's all confirmed. Now, remember again, as authoritative and as reliable as uh, the OneRing.net is, they are not Amazon. Uh, they do not have the definitive word on uh, what is true and what is not true for this show. But as far as anybody who's not the official source, they're pretty reliable. Rob, you and I remember we talked a while ago about this Lord of the Rings show. And we talked about some of the things we want to see, some of the things that we don't want them to see. And I remember one of the things that we mentioned was you don't want to become overly reliant on just callbacks to the Lord of the Rings movies. Like, don't make every single other line a reference to, for what's to come in Fellowship of the Ring. You know, don't, don't right. just become a big nostalgia play. At the same time, you and I thought you need to work in a couple, some connective tissue. 
to make the audience feel, yeah, we're in Middle Earth. We're in that place again. So you're going to want some connective tissue. And we speculate and talked about Sauron and, you know, Elrond being, you know, who he is could have been around. Gladriel could have been around. I'll tell you what, this, this is exciting, but it's tempered excitement for me. Because I'm excited about it being Galadriel and Elrond if you get Cate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving back. Now, don't get me wrong. All actors are replaceable. Even Hugo Weaving, who is great. Even Cate Blanchett, who's one of the best actresses in the world. They're all replaceable. And I'll still be excited about Galadriel and, and Elrond being there if it's not them. But I will be very stoked if it is them. Just because if you want to bring in these characters to reignite and really put in cement for the audience that this is that world in a different time period, but it is that world having them come back. I don't anticipate Rob. Frank is asking if we think it'll be a huge role for these characters or not. Assuming that the report from the one ring.net is, is legit. Uh, my guess is going to be, they probably won't be the key players. I think they will be side characters just there for that. Um, so I'm not assuming they'll be big. So listen, I'm going to right now, even though I wouldn't put money on it, I'm going to guess that if the one ring is saying it, I'm going to guess that this is true. It, it might turn out that they're incorrect. They're not always hundred percent right on everything. So they could be incorrect. Keep that in mind. It's not official. I'm going to operate on the assumption for now, though, Rob, that this is correct and being correct. I am excited that these characters are going to be there, even if they are in what I expect to be small parts and being small parts. Maybe that increases the chances that they can get Kate Blanchett to show up for a day or two, you know, and film a couple of scenes to get Hugo weaving to just show up for a day or two, shoot a couple of scenes. I'd be very excited about that. Of course, it always comes down to Rob execution. Do they do it well? That's the big question. Rob, you hear about this couple questions. Do you think this is legit? And if so, do you think this is a good move on their part or does it reek of just trying to make it feel more nostalgic? How do you see it? Well, no, because, I mean, as we know, Galadriel and Elrond were part of the Second Age. I, I mean, what's really interesting to me about this show is if you go back and you look into Tolkien's mythology about what happened during the Second Age, I mean, like, Sauron was a dude, was, like, in human form, walking around. I mean, he was a character, and, and he had form, and we saw Elrond fighting in the war of the ring that ended the second age we saw that at the beginning of fellowship of the ring and galadriel one of the elves that that had one of the rings of power so the idea that if you know your tolkien mythology they were around and the second age as a matter of fact i recently watched a youtube video that i don't know who did it but they, they broke down the second age of 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 middle earth and you watch it and you're like oh i want to see this show because it's so interesting and, and, and every, everything that happened. And the One Ring, if they're reporting it, I mean, those guys were hugely supportive of, like, when we were working on the extended edition uh, uh, DVDs for, for the Lord of the Rings films. Those guys were on it, man. And remember, when they won, when Peter Jackson won, it was, what, 11 Academy Awards, 13 Academy Awards? 11. They went to the, they went to the One Ring party afterwards. Like, that's where they went. So it it, it it the one ring is is uh, you know they are the they are the website of note and they know and if the if the one ring is reporting it I would take that to the bank. Rob, let me ask you the question, you know, they they bring up uh, the question of if they are there what do you think the chances are that we get Kate Blanchett and that we get Hugo Weaving and if it's not them, do you think that's 
a terribly big distraction or do you think it's okay if it's not them? How do you see that working out? Look, if it's it, – well, because it is in the second age and we're talking, you know, thousands of years or whatever, uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But I, I, I mean the Lord of the Rings films loom so large that if they could get Kate Blanchett – I mean I'm sure if Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving were asked, they would come back and do it. Like I, I think that they would. But on the other hand, it's been 20 years you know, and and Hugo Weaving and 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 Kate Blanchett, they're supposed to be younger, but I know there are elves that live a very long time. But um, I I think they would come back, but maybe the producers don't want them because they want their own identity. Mm. But they're back in New Zealand. I mean, I, I if if you know what those movies are so they loom so large in the pop culture consciousness. Why wouldn't you if you could get them? Because wouldn't that be wouldn't that be cool? Like, like oh, yeah. everybody would love that. Yeah, and they're already they all ma- they, they're already completely covered in makeup anyway. Right. So like the age stuff really doesn't become an issue because they're they're made up to look like fair elves. Anyway, I mean, but, you know, but Rob, is it is it for the average viewer? Do you think it'll be a significant put off for the average viewer if? Lord Elrond comes on screen and it's not Hugo Weaving or do you think we would just adjust to it pretty quick? I, I think we would we would adjust to it. I, I I mean, I I really do. I think we would adjust to it because they'll probably cast some great people. But if look, if I was making the show, the first people I would call up, I'm like, hey, Kate uh, <laughs> or, or Hugo Weaving, I have to hear you bring forth the ring. Frodo. You know, I mean, I need to hear I need to hear your voice as Elrond. I mean, come on, dude. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> I mean, why not? Because yeah. you know, we John, we live in a world where we're getting so much cool stuff that that it would just be cool if they were if they came back and played those roles. And and I think we now live in a world where where the geek stuff that we're getting is just so cool. Like, despite the fact that Star Trek and Star Wars might not be as cool as we want them to be, but everything else that we're getting is really cool. So I would think the cool factor that somebody's going, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we got them? Like, why not? Why? Let's just call them up. It's not like they wouldn't want to come and hang out in New Zealand for a while because everyone loved New Zealand. Yeah. And and I would listen. I, I think they will try to get them. Uh, but I also still think they will be small roles. So if it's not them, yeah. I think it's okay. I think it's totally fine if it's not them, if they have to get other actors. But the fact that it is small roles, I'm just guessing, that means less of a commitment, right? It means less of a commitment. Hey, Hugo, we don't need you for three months. We just right. come on down for a weekend, dude. Let us wine and dine you. We'll put up your family. We'll show them a great time. And we'll we'll bring you over to set for like two days. Shoot a I mean, couple he's of a, scenes. You go weaving. He's Australian, dude. It's a three-hour plane flight. Hop on over the pond. Question is, guys, what do you think about this? Do you like the idea of them bringing in characters like Gladriel, Elrond, Sauron? Do you think maybe that's a little too connective to the original stuff? Maybe you think it's just the perfect amount. Do you think they're going to get the original actors back? If they don't, do you think it's that big of a deal? Jump down into the comment section below and let us know 
your thoughts. All right, guys. With all that down, we're now going to move into the live questions and comments part of the show. Once again, if you want to get a live question or comment on, simply go to the tip link that's in the top of the description of this video, streamelements.com slash movieblogdv slash tip. You'll be getting your comment or question on the show if it's reasonable, and you'll be supporting the show at the same time time so with that down guys let's start getting into it and we're going to start things off here oops i had a little bit of a jump here so let me find where we're at again uh we're going to go back and start with where we left off from the last show and that is going to be i believe it's a ben rayner campia and it is ben rayner starts us off by asking hey john Today I'm watching, this would have been the other day, I'm watching Alien 3. I've heard things, but I'm still going to watch it. Uh, then I'll move on to Predator franchise. Then you guess it, I'll do Alien versus Predator 1 and 2. Just wanted to share and say thanks uh, and, uh, for everything you do uh, for this film fan community. Well, Ben, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you've moved past the best parts. I, I So Ben was writing in saying he had his first viewing of Alien. Then he had his first viewing of Aliens 2, which is all great. That's awesome. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to inform you, Ben, you've moved past the best stuff. Now <laughs> you're now into the stuff that we don't talk about as much once you get into aliens three and onward. And unfortunately the alien versus predator stuff and whatever, but Hey, at least you're there. And at least now you can say that you're watching. So that's always good. All right. Next up, ZMG ruler writes, well, I must recommend Ventura or Oxnard. If you're stuck in the state uh, where I was talking the other day, Rob, about how um, it looks like Anne won't have to move. We won't have to move to Seattle for Anne's job with Amazon. They're letting her work from home, but they did ask that she stay living in California for taxation purposes. Well, I must recommend Ventura or Oxnard if you're stuck in the state. My brother and his girlfriend moved to Ventura from San Francisco last year, and it's the most affordable major city in California. We've been looking at, at possibly Ventura, as a matter of fact, and only an hour from LA. The Flash actor from Smallville is there. Oh, I remember that kid. He's not a kid anymore, as a matter of fact. Um, yeah, so we're looking around. We're thinking about if we do stay in California, we'll probably move out of Burbank because, you know, you need to spend $800,000 in Burbank to get a two-bedroom, one-bathroom, 800-square-foot shack, um, which, surprise, surprise, is not something I can spend $800,000 on. I don't have that kind of money. Uh, so we are looking at moving out um, out of the town, but not far away. We still want to be relatively close to the Burbank, Pasadena area and stuff like that. So we'll see how that all kind of works out. Uh, thanks for that. Thanks for the recommendations, ZOMG. We've been looking at Ventura and Oxnard, as a matter of fact. Uh, Mike C writes, Hey, John, if you had to pick a movie and a TV series that you and Anne are most in disagreement with, what would it be? Uh, something you just have radically different opinions on. Well, with, for movies... The one that comes to mind for me is The Descent. I love The Descent. It's probably my second favorite all-time horror movie. I love The Descent, and Anne hates it. It rules, she, dude. Oh, dude, I love The Descent. I, I, I love that movie. I think it's fantastic. She really does not like it. She doesn't get the, the appeal to it, and that's fine. With TV, I can't really think of one because, I mean, if you don't like a TV show, you don't watch it. You don't watch three seasons of it. Unless you're mean, you keep watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for five years, even though you don't like the show. Um, so, and I don't really have one on that. Rob, do you have one that stands out with you and Elizabeth, like a movie that either one of you absolutely loves while the other one of you absolutely hates it? Point Break. No. <laughs> we did one of our shows about, about whining about movie show about Point Break. She hated it. And I'm like, no! come on, man. Well, I'm glad it's not you that hey, but really, she didn't like Point Break. No. But Bodie, <laughs> Johnny she was Utah, not feeling it, and we mean the original Point Break, the only Point Breaks. Yeah, yeah, not the remake that they did. Yeah, Elizabeth was not down with Point Break. 
I was surprised by that. I was I was about ready to leave. <laughs> I, I'm out of here, babe. I'm gonna I, go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Australia to to uh, to that beach. Catch that wave. You know, and, yeah, I'm gonna do it. I'm out. Gary Busey, Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze. What? I love that Corey, movie, man. Eddie, yeah, even Anthony Kiedis in a small role. Come on. <laughs> Oh, I love that one. Oh, that's sad to hear, Rob. All right, let's move on here. Dim some old five rights. Hey, Campia, haven't watched your show in almost two weeks because of the lack of movie news. Uh, there's been, I mean, there have been some great days for movie news. It's been a little bit weak, though, because, you know, no movies right now. Um, so forgive me if I feel like a sack of crap. Oh, don't worry about it, Dim Sum. Uh, Universal moving the window was a huge bonehead move, uh, though. Uh, smack my, I know you love you too. I do. But what's your favorite Rush song? Ooh, my favorite Rush song. Good Canadian kids, by the way, Rush. A lot of people will automatically say Tom Sawyer, and that that's a great pick. Mine is actually New World Man. And Ooh. I think part of the reason is because, man, that that baseline Getty does, the bum 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 as you got Neil in the background ripping away like greatest drummer of all time and everything like I'm gonna go. I'm going to say New World Man is my favorite. Rob, if you had to pick out your favorite Rush tune, uh, which one would it be? Well, the first that come to mind, the two, uh, Limelight and Working Man. Yeah. yeah we're... I mean, it's not exactly, you know, I'm not, it's not a deep cut, but, but those are just things I remember. I mean, I've always loved Rush. Oh well, I mean, there was an entire movie basically based on Rush. I love you, man. If you remember that one with Paul Rudd Dude, and Jason Segel, I love that movie. I love that movie. Slap the bass, and it's basically Slap the, the base, entire relationship man. is predicated on Rush. I'm surprised. Uh, I'm surprised we don't talk about that one more. All right. Uh, next up, we got uh, Kevin uh, Kamaki who writes, "Love you, John. Oh, thanks so much, Kevin. Appreciate that. It's always nice when somebody wants to write in something." Just to say something nice. I appreciate that, man. And thanks for being here. And thanks for supporting the show, dude. Uh, String him uprights. I almost forgot James Gunn wrote those live action Scooby-Doo movies. Oh, yes, he did. And oh, my God, the dog looked fake AF. Yes, he did. Uh, what are your thoughts on them? And why wasn't there a third one? Also, breaking news, uh, shoestring competition, string them up, coming to Disney Plus uh, 2021, get hyped. I'm not, I, I think I've heard some about that. I'm not really familiar with it. But yeah, James Gunn actually just talked again recently about those Scooby-Doo movies that he was the screenwriter on. And like he actually wanted to make Daphne. I think he was talking about trying to make Daphne. Was it Daphne or Velma? Which one's the hot redhead in Scooby-Doo? Is it Daphne or Velma? Daphne. Daphne sorry. He wanted to make uh, Velma. He wanted to make her uh, lesbian. He wanted to make her a lesbian character. Studio pushed back on a little bit. So we talked about that a little bit recently. I, I Look, I'm, I'm not going to lie. While I love a number of the people involved in those movies, Freddie Prince Jr. I I I I think Freddie Prince Jr. is great. Um, uh, James Gunn, obviously, I love James Gunn. Not a fan, Rob. Not a fan of those Scooby Doo movies. Do you have any kind of uh, memories of those, or what are your thoughts on those films? I, I'm I'm not much of a fan of them either. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, no verisimilitude for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a talking dog movie. Of course, there's not going to be verisimilitude. 
All right, uh, let's move on here. Next one up. Uh, Tristan Riera writes, who's a Patreon supporter. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter, Tristan. I appreciate that very much. All right, Tristan writes, uh, hi, John. Thanks for trying to solve my problem with the superhero lesson. Oh, that's right. You're a teacher who wrote in the other day about trying to find like good archival interview stuff uh, with uh, the creators of Superman and stuff. like that. I remember that. Um, thanks for trying to solve my problem with superhero lesson project. Unfortunately, when I said the stuff I was finding was bad quality, I meant the sound is not great. Maybe my Man of Steel Blu-ray set will have a featurette about Soup's creation. My quest will go on. Uh, Rob, I didn't have anything. So, so this person wanted to use um, some, uh, some interview stuff about the creation of Superman, the character, and was having a hard time finding any quality stuff on YouTube or anything. I didn't really know of anything anywhere else they could go, anywhere else they could go to find something. Are you aware of anything that would give some good groundwork for them to use in a classroom? That's tough. I mean, I, yeah. I would have to think about that. Um, off the top of my head, I, I, there's, I'm sure there's a lot, but I don't. I, I'd have to, I'd have to delve into that more. Yeah, I, I was a little bit, I was a little bit iffy. I couldn't think of think of much stuff on that one either. All right, but good luck in your quest on that. And do let us know if you find some good stuff in there. It would be good to find out. All right, Team Kong writes. Uh, were you ever a fan of Pa Kent's? Uh, swing vote. Oh, by pocket, you mean Kevin Costner's swing vote. Uh, the question, the question scene at the end brings tears to my eyes. As a matter of fact, I, I quite, I quite like swing vote. I don't think it's like a top 50 movies of all time or anything like that, but I quite like swing vote. Cause not only you got Kevin Costner, um, you've got, uh, Dennis Hopper in there. Uh, you've got Frazier, uh, uh, he plays Frazier and Kelsey Beast. Grammer. Kelsey Grammer. Thank you. You got Kelsey Grammer and Dennis Hopper, the two guys running for president. For those of you who don't know much about the movie, the basic gist of it is this. Because of a, of a miscalculation, whatever, the presidential election literally comes down to one guy, I believe in Florida. I believe it's Florida. One guy in Florida has to redo his vote, and it's an absolute tie. And if he votes for the one president, they win the state and they win the election and they become president. If he votes for the other guy, that guy becomes president. And there's a scene at the end of the film that is really well done where it's basically they hold this televised debate where this guy played by Kevin Costner, just an average dude, is moderating a televised debate. And basically, they're just both trying to convince him. And there's a great speech that's given at the end of the film. There's a great speech at the end of the film that Costner gives as he's starting this televised debate. And it's, it's quite moving. And it ends, if I'm not mistaken, it ends with him asking a question. He, he, he got all these letters from other Americans for questions that please ask the presidential candidates this. And he reads this one question. If I remember correctly, he's like, uh, dear so-and-so, you know, I serve my country in the military and I'm proud of it. But my wife and I both work two jobs just to make ends meet. And some months we're not able to. And basically he said, I would like you to ask the candidates, how can we be the richest country in the world? And yet so many of us can't afford to live here. It's a powerful line. It's a powerful, powerful line. And the movie ends with Kelsey Grammer turning to, to Dennis Hopper, say, I, I would like to take that question first, if you wouldn't mind, sir. And Dennis Hopper says, go ahead, Mr. President. And he starts to answer the question, but that's the end of the movie. And then the movie there ends. It's a it's really a nice little film that not a lot of people have seen. Um, so I'm glad you brought it up. Rob, have you ever seen that Kevin Costner film, Swing Vote? I have. And I, I like Swing Vote. Like you said, it's, it's, it's a nice movie. 
It's a nice movie. I like it. Um, uh, you know who else is in that movie is um, um, uh, Stanley Tucci is in yes. the movie. Yes, he is. I, I love anything Stanley Tucci's in. I don't know. Uh, I, I he's one of my favorite actors. Other than the last Transformers movie he was in, and wasn't it? And the guy, and the guy, the producers guy, uh, uh, Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane's That's in that right. movie too. Yep. Yes, he is. Hmm. If you guys have never seen again, it's not a great movie, but I I quite like it. Specifically, the ending. It's a really nice. They tie it up very nicely at the end, and it's got a, a good feel. Uh, but honest question at the end, and, and I like that. Anyway, good question, Team um, uh, Team Kong. I appreciate it. And good name as well. All right. Koa1708 writes, why do you hate baseball again, John? You said it's not a sport. Yep, and I'm not going to go into I've I've talked about this 50, 60, 70 times. I think baseball um, is a game, not a sport. Uh, much like I think curling is a game, not a sport. Right now, all my Canadian brethren are aghast at what I just said. <gasps> Baseball. I'm sorry. Curling. You, you're sorry. Wrong. Curling you're is wrong. a game. It's not a sport. Darts. Dude, don't I you believe, want to feel the dreams and cry? Come on, I, man. Come on. No, 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 listen, listen. I'm not under. Guess what? Poker is a game. It's not a sport. And I love poker. And it's on ESPN and all that kind of stuff. Um, but anything, I think anything that doesn't require you to truly be an elite athlete to to play the game then i don't consider it a sport football sport you have to be a supreme level athlete uh basketball you have to be an elite level athlete hockey you need to be an elite soccer you need to be an elite level athlete i respect the amount of incredible skill it takes to play darts or curling or poker or or chess or like it takes an incredible level of skill, but you don't can't need believe to be I'm even on this show listening to this. You, I'm sorry. My argument's this... always been you don't need to be an elite level athlete. I'm sorry. Just look at Fernando Valenzuela. I'm sorry. You don't you don't have to be in baseball. You don't need to be an elite level athlete. Are you body shaming Fernando star. Valenzuela? No, I'm simply saying he's a schlub like me. He doesn't have to be an elite level athlete to be great at that game. And that's why I kind of consider it a game, not a sport. I'm joining and, cancel culture just to cancel you now, right now. <laughs> hey, it is what it is. It is what it is. But I don't mean, again, I have the highest level of respect for people who play chess, poker, curling, other games like that. I just consider that to be one of those. It takes you are besmirching all of America right now. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. You can be a right fielder in baseball and literally not take a step in a three-hour game and be paid – Five million dollars a year. Yeah, but when that ball gets gets hit over over right or left field, you damn well better be able to run fast and jump high. Again, I Come yeah, on. for for a second. I, again, it's a it's a it's a game that you don't need to be an elite level athlete to be excellent at that game. You know, you can't be excellent at basketball if you're not an elite level athlete. It, you just can't be. Um, but but baseball, you can. Come on, you're not you're not going to disagree with me on that, right? You you can be at a very like look at Prince Fielder. You can be at the top of that game without being an elite level athlete, right? Wouldn't you agree uh, with that? No, I, I'm just saying that's just my thought on it. That's just my thought. Uh, and everybody, you know, everybody disagrees with me on that, and that's fine. But you ask me my opinion, that's my opinion. I, I consider it more of a high level game than I do a sport, much like curling. You got to be incredibly skilled at it. You do. You have to be incredibly skilled. But I don't consider curling a sport. I consider it a game, a great game, but it's a game. It's I'm a writing game. you a hate letter. <laughs> anyway, 
Uh, Filthonomics Major writes, uh, John, the other day you had mentioned non-sequel Harrison Ford movies. Of course, The Fugitive and Sabrina were mentioned. Those are probably my two favorite non-franchise Harrison Ford movies are uh, Fugitive and Sabrina. Witness is also really good, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but one of my favorites is American Graffiti. It also had a stellar cast as well. Ron Howard, as a matter of fact, uh, as well. I really enjoy watching that movie every year. For those of you who don't know, American Graffiti is the film that George Lucas directed that got the studios to agree to let him make this little Star Wars movie. Uh, there's that. Um, I don't know that I would count... Rob, tell me if you agree with me on this or not. I don't know that I would count American Graffiti because I don't, unlike Sabrina, <laughs> pardon me, Sabrina or Witness or Fugitive or Air Force One or whatever, American Graffiti isn't really a Harrison Ford film. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's more of an ensemble cast. Yeah. So I don't know. But but if I had to put that question to you, Rob, like if you had to think of like your favorite Harrison Ford movie slash performance that wasn't one of his big franchise ones, what would be the first ones that come to your mind? Well, I mean, I, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is 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 Blade Runner. But you know, I'll, you know what movie I really like that he's in is Robert Zemeckis's What Lies Beneath. Oh, the one he did with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, the one he did with Michelle Pfeiffer, and you know, there's there's other ones like I know he played Jack Ryan in two movies, but I love Clear and Present Danger. Oh, I, I love, love that one too. It's so good. And then, you know, you think back to to other movies, uh, The Mosquito Coast. Peter Weir's The Mosquito yep. Coast. He's amazing in that movie. And uh, he made that after Witness. And I like – it's not great, but I really like Roman Polanski's Frantic where he's looking for his missing wife in Paris. Yep. I, I, I really like that movie a lot. By the way, the clear and present danger. These cartels represent a clear and present danger. Anyway. Um, That's the that... Potomac two-step, Jack. You got you to gotta chip in the big game now. You got to chip so in the good. big game. But the villain of that film – whose name I always forget, the name of the actor. Joaquin Delamita. Something about that. First of all, he's great in that movie. He is the cardinal slash pope in the Netflix series uh, Warrior Nun that we were talking about. And I remember that's the first thing that got me excited. Like, oh, my God, that's the bad guy. I I hardly ever see him anywhere. That's the bad guy from Clear and Present Danger. Um, So good in that. He's such a good villain in that. He's also in a – he's in – Fast Five. Fast and Furious Five. You're right. I totally forgot about that. Well done. All right. Let's move on here. Uh, Next up here, we've got Suthius who writes, Hey, guys, when I say female action star of today, who comes to mind? There's the likes of Kate Beckinsale, uh, Mila uh, Jovovich, Scarlett Johansson, Emily Blunt, and even newcomers like Sophia Boutella. Uh, But for me, as Charlize all day, my God, she's good at it. She is like for, for me, though, by today's standards... You've got to be a great actress and great at on-screen action. I think I, – I, I don't – I'm going to take a lot of flack for this. I, I don't put Mila Jovovich in that category. Uh, I like Mila Jovovich, particularly in, in Zoolander. But I don't consider her to be a great actress. You know what I mean? Don't I, I, Nothing wrong. She's serviceable, all that kind of stuff. Um, Kate she's Beckinsale – She's Fifth Element, dude. I know she's in Fifth Element, but – Come on. Um, I, I, let's not pretend like she deserved an Academy Award for that movie. Kate Beckinsale, she just she hasn't done – I mean, I love Kate Beckinsale, but she hasn't oh done a God. lot of action in the last eight years, has she? Like when was the last Underworld film that came out? 
It's it's been a um, while, right? Yeah, it's been a while. But you know, whenever I think of Kate uh, Beckinsale, there's action happening in my mind. <laughs> I mean, she's awesome. I love her in obviously the Underworld films oh. um, and, and whatever. And then she was. I mean, it's a bad movie, but it's an action film. She was Van Helsing and all that kind of stuff. But the three that you know I that think she that you bitched was in that TV series. Uh, the, the about the her husband's missing or her husband's dead. It it, it was um uh, uh, uh it was last year, like it was on the Amazon series. Oh, I can't. Oh, I, I'm I can't remember which one that is. But I well, I, I mean she, she's I I really like her. You know I love. Have you ever seen her like on talk shows and things? Yes. She looks like she's the coolest person in the world. Yeah, and she can, she's she stunningly can, beautiful. I love her listening be, to her talk. Oscar nominated and she can do something like Van Helsing. She's great. I think the three you put on that list are are the most dominant ones. I, I think it's Scarlett Johansson. I think it's Emily Blunt. I think it's Charlize Theron. Th those are the three because they're all Academy level kind of actresses. Yeah. And they are all great when they do action. Um, obviously, a lot of the stuff that all of them do will have their stunt doubles, but they're great at making it feel seamless. And uh, man, I you know, I watched Old Guard again. I liked it even more the second time. She's I, I, great in it too, uh, dude. And, and look, you look at her in Atomic Blonde, uh, are, as well. I mean, I she's really great. So those three, Furiosa. yeah. Ooh. So I really like those three: I, Scarlett Johansson, Emily Blunt, and uh, and Charlize. I think those those are the three right now. All right, let's keep moving here. Uh, that was Suthius. Next up, Suthius also writes plot twist: the CEO of Helios and Matheson. That was the company that owned Movie Pass, by the way. The CEO of Hel Helios and Matheson became the new CEO of AMC. Uh, that's why things are happening as they are. Seems like the CEOs of the other big studios are fine, and then there's Universal. Isn't Paramount in trouble too? Maybe they can be friends. I, you know what. In all the speculation, because, you know, they've they've struggled to have hits lately, Paramount. But, you know, Rob, correct me if I'm wrong. We've never heard any official word from anybody that says Paramount's in any kind of trouble. I mean, yeah, they've struggled to produce hits. You've got to assume that's hit them hard. But I think they're also a very cash-rich company. And I think they are designed, they've been around for like a century, that they can survive stretches like this. So I don't know that they're actually in trouble. They're, they're in a slump. There's no, there's no around, way around that. Paramount's in a slump. But I don't know if they're in trouble. Have you heard anything about that? No. I mean, just, you know, I know that they've had a lot of, of problems with Chinese financiers and things like that. But, you know, Jim Giannopoulos, who took over as the head of Paramount, he's a very, very savvy guy. And I think uh, I, I think we're going to see – I mean, they've got some stuff coming out that I really want to see, like Coming to America too. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I, I, I'm looking forward to their, their slate. All right. Let's move on here. Next up, the Sock writes, the only scene as good as the cafeteria scene, the accumulated filth of all their sex and murder. Oh, this is uh, Rorschach. The, uh, the accumulated filth of all their sex and murder will foam up about their waists and all the whores and politicians will look up and shout, save us. And I'll look down on them and whisper, no. <laughs> hey, Google, I'll whisper down <laughs> and say, no. Um, yeah, again, listen, when the, where the, the Watchmen is an interesting movie. In the sense that it seems like most people really didn't like it or really loved it. It, it, it. There's not a lot of people you find in the middle ground on that movie. I'm more in the middle. I, I see it wasn't great, but I see a lot of like very ambitious, great elements to it. So I enjoy it. Although, you'll, again, you'll find most people either thought that movie was a complete waste or a complete masterpiece. Rob, I think you kind of fall. You love that movie, don't you, if I'm not mistaken? Well, you know, Watchmen's one of my favorite things in the world, the comic book. Right. 
And uh, I, I think that here's what I've said to people. The movie is a great recreation of the comic, but I don't think it's a great adaptation of the comic. Mm. But there's a lot in it that I love. I mean, I find myself just because I love that world. Zack Snyder does a great job of recreating all of these different scenes in the movie. But for instance, there are things in it that I think like I love Matthew Good as an actor, but I think he's not good as Ozymandias. His his portrayal of Ozymandias, I thought, was completely wrong. And I've, it's always puzzled me that he seems so otherworldly when I always thought Ozymandias was this larger than life. He's the center of attention like, hey, welcome to my world. You know, you'd never believe that he's masterminding this whole plot. And I always thought somebody once talked about having Tom Cruise play Ozymandias being Tom Cruise. And I'm like, that's more how I, I would envision the character. But that's a minor that's a minor quibble, really. But I I, I mean. Uh, there's a lot of it to like, and I do watch that movie a lot more than I would care to admit. Yeah, I actually preferred Jeremy Irons's incarnation of Ozymandias. Like, I, I just really that was the, to me that was more the personality type, you know. That was right. just more the personality type. But all right, let's keep moving here. Uh, Willow writes. I was so conditioned to sitting through 20 plus minutes of commercials before a movie that I didn't even realize there was anything wrong with the practice until you ranted about it. Did theaters play ads when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Actually, not even just when I was a kid. I, there are some movie theaters in Canada where I think they've changed this, but it wasn't just when the movie was supposed to start at 7 o'clock that trailers would play. When start time came at 7 o'clock, they would play some trailers and they would play commercials. M&M's commercials. Ford Motor Company commercials. Feminine hygiene commercials. You name, They would play commercial and commercial and commercial and commercial and then trailer and trailer and trailer and trailer. And then you were left at like 25, 30 minutes after the movie was supposed to start, you would get it. It is honestly, I believe, one of the worst things that movie theaters do today is that thing. That's why the Arclight, Rob, the Arclight has a beautiful policy. Three trailers, movie starts. Yep. I love, love it. it. You get a couple of great trailers, which we all love, and then the movie starts. And the movie starting like if it's supposed to start at ten, or as if it's supposed to start at seven o'clock, it's starting at like seven o eight or something like that. Premium, no commercials, three trailers, go. This whole thing about I paid you to be in this theater for a seven o'clock show. And you're not starting this thing till 7.30? That's a half hour of my time that you stole from me that you did not compensate me for or pay me for. You want me to sit through a half hour commercials of trailers? That That's fine. Give me a free popcorn. Give me something to compensate me for my time. It's uh, I get I am more upset about that. And I honestly do think it subconsciously plays an effect on the overall movie going experience. I really do. I think it's an impact on the overall movie-going experience, and I think they need to fix it. Anyway, next up, Suthius writes, uh, one of two. In regards to Dragon Ball Super Broly, uh, one of the main reasons why there hasn't been any announcements for another Dragon Ball movie is because may, is because the majority of the people who work on Broly also work on other animes throughout the year. It takes a lot of time. Another main reason is because um, creator Akira uh, Toriyama is notorious about procrastinating when writing up story outlines and giving them to Toy. Combine that with the limited series with the limited people who work on Dragon Ball is also why there has been any dragon ball in two years so rob where this came from was somebody was asking about this movie like super uh dragon ball uh, super dragon ball uh dragon ball super broly it made they made it for like eight million dollars 
and it made like 115 million or more. I can't remember yeah. the exact number, but it, it made a lot of money relative to his budget. And somebody's asking, well, why the hell haven't they done another one? And I looked at it and I said, yeah, why? Look, I'm not a super, I'm, I'm Super Bowl. I am not a Dragon Ball Z guy. I, I, I don't hate it. I just, it's not for me. I'm not a fan of Dragon Ball Z. But when you look at numbers like that, like what I said on the show is I'm surprised they haven't made six more in the last two years, considering those numbers. So Suthius has given a pretty good explanation. Like, again, I don't know the behind the scenes workings of Dragon Ball or anything like that. Rob, have you heard anything about that? And why do you no, think we I haven't mean, got I, one? You know, I, I'm, I'm, I like anime, but I'm not a big Dragon Ball Z fan. I was a little old uh, to get into it, but I'm sure the the explanation you just read is probably pretty, pretty accurate. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. Next up comes Justin Suthius who writes, so one of my latest binges these past few months was the show Eureka. <laughs> I may or may not have dated a girl who was on Eureka. Anyway, <laughs> uh, about a, a scientific town and its scientific people. Now one of my favorite shows. I loved it. All of the science, uh, science and technology were great, even if some may have been fabricated. And you know what? It's one of those shows where if you go back and visit it now, you'll be surprised how many prominent people from pop culture were were in that show, or at least appeared in that show. Everything from Will Wheaton appeared in that show. Um, um, who's who's the girl? Um, redhead ran um, the guild. She was uh, uh, she became popular because of the guild. What's her name again? And then she's been on Supernatural in a recurring role for a while and and she run, and she runs geek and sundry she's like the founder of geek and sundry oh um, um uh felicia I, felicia day felicia day yeah. <laughs> yeah felicia day appeared in that i mean you go back to that show now and you'll be surprised when you see all these different people pop up through it uh and it was it was a little you know what rob i think eureka was a show that was actually a little bit ahead of its time i think if a show like that were to come out in like 2017 i think it really would have gathered more of a, and it, it did all right for itself but i think it would have been even more popular did you ever watch eureka when it was on i yeah i did i liked it i thought it was good it was always an enjoyable watch you know, it's not like I love it like I love Star Trek, but it was good. Yeah, it was a fun. And I, I honestly think it would have done better if it came out like 10 years later. I really do. I thought it was a little bit ahead of its time. All right. Jeff Kang writes, uh, what are your thoughts on the scene from Rocky where he reflects on the talk he has with Mickey about motivation? Uh, brings me to tears every time. Get up, you son of a bitch, because Mickey loves you. I, I don't know that I remember the scene in particular. What are your thoughts on the scene from Rocky where he reflects on the talk he has with Mickey? I I don't know if I'm recalling. Rob, do you know the scene he's talking about? Uh, vaguely. It's funny because we're going to watch Rocky this week for whining about movies. Oh, nice. And uh, I, I will know it then. <laughs> has Elizabeth never watched the original Rocky? Oh, no. She loves it. She picked it for our okay. Romantic Friday movie. Ooh, Romantic yeah, we, Friday. Rocky. We do Romantic Fridays on whining about movies. So, yeah, she picked it. Yeah, because that one is actually as much as, as it's it is as much about him and Adrian as it is about the boxing. Yeah, that, that movie. Now, it obviously Rocky franchise changed direction significantly after the first one. They became very different kinds of movies. But that first one really was a, a movie about him and Adrian. Right. Yeah. 
All right. Anyway, so that's a good pick for it. Uh, let's see here. Jared Oberfeld writes, thoughts on Transformers Roar, War for Cybertron. I think it's great storytelling with excellent animation. If you haven't heard of it, it that's Netflix marketing in a nutshell. That's true. I did see. I, I watched. I binged. I think it was six episodes. I binged all of uh, Transformers War for Cybertron. Um, I liked it. I certainly liked it more than all the recent Transformers movies other than Bumblebee. My big problem with there, there's a few issues with war for Cybertron. One of the big issues for me was I really didn't like their depiction of Optimus prime. Optimus hmm. prime came across as an indecisive kind of wishwashy um, kind of character who was noble enough, but really wasn't much of a leader. Like I'm watching this. It's like, mm, it's like at every turn he's proven wrong. Right. Wow. And it's like, I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm just not digging it. What I really liked, Rob, I don't know if you've seen it yet. What I really liked was Megatron. I think they did a really good job with Megatron. I like the story arc surrounding Jetfire in it. Um, the animation was pretty good. I liked the animation, but there was a lot of things that didn't make any logical sense. And I won't give away the things because they might be considered spoilers for people who haven't had a chance to see it yet. Um, so overall, I liked it. I did. Uh, certainly better than everything from Transformers 2 all the way on to Transformers last night. But I, yeah, it didn't, I didn't love it, but it's got me enough that I'll watch the next set of the next set that they do. Have you had a chance to watch it at all, Rob? No, but I, I, it looks good to me. I've, I, people keep asking me about it and I need to get on that. I want to finish Umbrella Academy first though. <laughs> yes. Yes. Do finish Umbrella Academy. All right. But I'll watch uh, it. I mean, it looks cool. Check it out. And it, it's a quick watch. It's a quick watch because they're not super long episodes. It's only like six episodes. You know, I give it, I'd be, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on it. All right. Marie Seifring writes, Hey, John and Rob. How do you rank the four following Men Against the Sea genre of movies? White Squall, 1996 with Jeff Bridges and John Savage. The Perfect Storm, 2000 with George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. Uh, In the Heart of the Sea with Chris Hemsworth and Tom Holland. And Finest Hours with Chris Pine and Casey Affleck. Um, My favorite out out of those is probably Perfect Storm. I I thought Perfect Storm was a really solid, very, very good movie. Yeah, Um, I did too. I will then probably put White Squall second then finest hours with chris pine not many people went to go see that i was actually at the premiere for that one i i enjoyed that one it was good uh, too it's good too. yeah i didn't think it was great but i enjoyed it i'm hard pressed to think of many other films that disappointed me as much in the past 10 years as in the heart of the sea yeah. that was a movie rob that i was expecting to be a best picture contender and why not me. you have the great ron howard me you too had dude uh, Chris Hemsworth in there. It's it's a the, the story that Moby Dick was based on, and the trailers looked phenomenal. And it's a really bad movie. A- anyway, Rob, how would you rank those four? I would probably rank them the way you did. I mean, uh, you know, Perfect Storm. I w- went back. I don't know, like six months ago, and watched it again. It's really good. Like yeah. I'd forgotten. You really get caught up. You really like the characters. You know, the the whole milieu, that whole town, and and you really feel for that. Um, but finest hour, the finest, finest hours, the finest hour. Um, finest I really like yeah. that. I really like that too. I thought that was great. But um, I would give, uh, the, like you said, I would give the ranking. I, I'd, I'd use your same ranking. Uh, because in the heart of the sea was one of them. Like you said, I was so excited for it. The trailers made it look so good. 
Yeah. And then it was and look, like, at, and look eh. at the people involved. Look at I the know. people. I mean, there's every reason. But true story, the first time I ever saw Perfect Storm, I was actually on a cruise ship. I was on a cruise ship doing an Alaskan cruise uh, when in their movie theater on the cruise ship, they showed Perfect Storm. And I remember thinking, huh, that's an interesting choice to play on a cruise. Uh, but yeah, that was the first time I had ever seen it. All right. Thanks for saying that in, Marie. All right. Next up, K Major writes, hey, John. I came across the video of the theater reaction to the portal scene. Oh, there are many of those online, by the way. If you yeah. if you want to see something fun, go onto YouTube and search for audience reaction portal scene endgame. It's a ball. It's an absolute ball. Uh, and all I have to say is screw all you guys and your so-called home theaters. Nothing will replace that feeling in the theater. Long live the cinema. And that's just a great that, that's a great extreme example. But it, it is a great example of it in itself. Like, look. I don't care what you think of your home theater system is, and I don't care how much you paid on it. It sucks. Okay. It sucks compared to a real movie theater. Your home theater system sucks compared to, to like I've, I'm very proud of my home theater system. It's crap compared to a real movie theater, but it's, it's more than that. It's nothing like you can watch Endgame for the first time at home on video in your living room and have a perfectly good viewing experience and really enjoy the film. Yes. But nothing, nothing replaces, Rob, being in a crowd with 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 other people. And when on your left comes through Cap's earpiece, how the other people had earpieces that connected with him, we don't know. We, we won't worry about that right now. But when through his earpiece comes on your left... And the portals open and in comes the Wakandan army and in swings Spider-Man. In that moment when Thanos is about to kill Thor and Mjolnir flies by them and ends up in Cap's hands. When in that moment when the battle's ensuing and Tony and Pepper fly into the air side by side spinning back to back in their Iron Man outfits firing off shots. In that moment when Scarlet Witch says, you will, and, and the audience goes crazy and goes nuts, I'm sorry. It's not just the technology. When you're sitting in, in a movie theater watching 50-year-old Virgin, and Virgin, they strip the hair off Steve Carell's face and his reaction, and you're with 200 other people that start laughing themselves to tears. When you're in a movie theater watching Jaws and Bruce comes out of the water as Roy Schneider's standing there at the edge of the boat complaining about stuff and the cigarette just dangles in his and the reaction of everybody I'm sorry like part and this is what Christopher Nolan is always going on about the movie going experience is not about the superior technology of the screen or the superior technology of the sound or all that kind of stuff the theater going experience is about watching a, a movie in a darkened room with a bunch of other people and all having those shared reactions, the laughter, the shocks, the jumps, the scares, the heartbreak, the excitement of being around other people. And I'm sorry, but you watch those videos on YouTube, Rob, of audiences around the world reacting to portals or reacting to the Mjolnir scene or reacting to that kind of stuff or a bunch of other movies as well. Thor in, in Infinity War showing up in the Wakandan battle. Like these are things that absolutely exponentially heighten your experience of the movie and absolutely cannot be replaced at home. Dude, it, it just I, can't. <laughs> I get chills thinking about like I saw Endgame with you. 
And we, right, were in yep. a, we were in a theater with a bunch of jaded industry journalists and movie pundits. And it felt like I was in a room with five-year-olds when that happened. Yep. In like a good everybody way. was squealing like they were going to Chuck E. Cheese's for the first time in their lives. I mean, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I, mean, I felt that way. I was like, I, I mean, I'm thinking about it now and I'm getting that like whoosh that happens when something amazing happens in a movie that you feel from head to toe. And it, 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 it I mean, I would never have wanted to see that moment by myself. I mean, right. I feel bad that from now on, like if you were a kid born yesterday, by the time you get around, say you're, you know, eight, you start watching the MCU movies and you finally make your way to Endgame. I mean, I'm sure your parents are going to be like, what happened? Did you hurt yourself? And he, no, I just saw the portal scene. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's 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 it. But to be alone to see it is nothing like it was sitting in that theater, man. Dude, like even even not a great movie. Like I take what I think was the last movie I saw in theaters which was The Hunt. And I didn't like The Hunt. I, I didn't think it was a good movie. But being in a full theater and some of the kills that happened in that movie and the reaction being in that room, which and this isn't even a good movie, but you're in that room and like a certain kill happens near the beginning of the movie and the whole audience is like, Wah! together all at the same time. I mean, that's just that's just part of it. It's, it's kind of like the difference between watching a football game in the stadium with the crowd going nuts and going wild versus watching it at home. It's, it's cool to yeah. watch at home. It's perfectly great to watch football at home. I do it all the time, but it cannot replace actually being there in the stadium at the event itself and going crazy with everybody. And it's just a different thing. Anyway, Rob, we have uh, taken you to your, your max of your time. I know you got things you got to do today. Thanks so much for being here today, man. And in the meantime, before we have you back again tomorrow, where can people find you and follow your adventures online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Burnett RM. Find me on Instagram at my own name, Robert Meyer Burnett, or find me on my own YouTube channel, The Burnett Work, and my show, Observations, the show about something. All right, dude. Always a pleasure having you here, and we will talk to you again tomorrow, my friend. Good show, man. Take care, man. All right, guys. We still have about uh, 25 minutes here, so let's keep on rocking and rolling through your live questions. Of course, we'll have Rob back here again tomorrow. Uh, and we move things on here with Silly Goose, who writes, My Guilty Pleasures. One, uh, the live-action cat in the hat. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, two, killer clowns from outer space. That's a popular one to be listed amongst guilty pleasures. Uh, three, Transformers 3. <laughs> Four, Click. Oh, man, I wanted to like that Adam Sandler film. I wanted to like That's weird. That Click was like two different movies. Like the first half of the movie was like one movie, and the second half of the movie was like a completely different movie, and I liked one, and I didn't like the other. It's kind of a weird thing. Uh, number five, Jurassic Park 3. Almost put That's My Boy on there, but I know you'd explode. That's another Adam Sandler film. Just terrible movie. Uh, have a good one. But here's the important thing, Silly Goose. That's supposed to be what guilty pleasure movies are. Too many people list guilty pleasure movies as films that are actually really loved by people. Right? When a guilty pleasure movie is supposed to be a movie that is pretty much universally hated, but you like it. That's a, that's a great pick for a guilty pleasure. Right. And so I think all of your films, man, fall well into that guilty pleasure thing. So good on you for coming up with that list. All right. Uh, sorry, we just had a bit of a jump here. Let me get let me get back to where we were supposed to be. Um, so there was Marie K. Major, Silly Goose. OK, here we are now. Alan writes. Um, hey, John and Rob. And Rob just left us, unfortunately. Are there any movies you remember because of the song or are there songs you remember where? Uh, slash where introduced to because of a movie uh, for me it's I'll be missing uh, 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 I'll be missing you from Rush Hour 2 and Sunflower from Into the Spider 
I just watched uh, Into the Spider-Verse the other day. It's such a good scene as he's trying to remember the lyrics of the song. Um, for me, um, there are a number of songs that are inex- like just you they will forever be connected to the movie that when you think of the movie, you will think of that song. When you think of that song, you will think of that movie. Um, one is obviously the Celine Dion song from Titanic. Yeah. I mean that, that forever. And like, Hey, maybe we all got sick of it, but it was a great song. I, I was, that was a great song. We all got sick of it, but it was a totally great song. And there were very few human beings on the earth who could sing it like Celine did. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one of them. But I'll tell you the one that will always stick to me that really highlights. I can never think of that song without thinking of this movie. And I can never think of that movie without thinking of this song. And that for me is everything I do. I do for you by Brian Adams for Robin hood, uh, the Kevin Costner, Robin hood. Um, everything I do. I mean, that song for me is, you, you cannot pry the two apart. They are forever connected forever and always, right? Is that song and that one. Uh, going back to an older film, another one that's kind of in that league is the Louis Gossett Jr., um, Deborah Winger, uh, Richard Gere movie, Officer and a Gentleman. And there was a song that was connected to it, uh, Love List Us Up Where We Belong. Th- that's another one that you can never separate the song from the movie. Never, ever, ever can you separate the song from the movie. And yeah, so those those are a couple ones for me, Alan. Those are a couple ones for me that really stand in there. But yeah, that that song from Into the Spider-Verse, maybe that'll become one of those ones as well. Good good pick on that. All right, Suthius writes, so Robert Sheehan, the actor who portrays Klaus in Umbrella Academy, is actually Irish. Yes, he is. And I, I just learned, watching him as Klaus uh, and his small role in Mute, uh, I would have thought that he was American, LOL. Have you watched Mute, by the way? It was all right. Yeah, he's like, it's like, I remember the first time I watched an interview with with Christian Bale. I guess I can take the headphones off now. I remember the first time um, I, I I watched Christian Bale do an interview. It was so distracting because I had never seen Christian Bale at the time do anything other than his American kind of accent. And so when all of a sudden I heard him do an interview for the first time out of that, it was really weird. Yes, mute. That was that Netflix thing had Paul Rudd in it. It was directed by Duncan Jones who also did Moon and uh, 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 Warcraft and things like that, directed by Duncan Jones. I never did watch it, though, unless I'm not remembering correctly. But if I remember correctly, I never did getting around to watching that one. And who else was in there besides Paul Rudd? There was another name. But anyway, directed by Duncan Jones, starring Paul Rudd. I never did get to see it. But I love this guy playing Klaus in Umbrella Academy. I think he does a tremendous job playing that character. All right, thanks for that, Suthius. Uh, Limping Buffalo, going to the analogy I made the other day, sends in a $50 tip. Thank you so much, man, for supporting the channel on that on that level, dude. We appreciate that around here very, very much. Uh, Limping Buffalo writes, Happy Monday, John. Every day you answer our questions, and me, and, and me certainly appreciate it. My question is, Is there a topic that you would like to talk about, but just never have the time or opportunity to get around to it? Thanks and have a great day. Ooh, you know, here's the funny thing. You know, we take, we probably do 20 to 40 questions a day, maybe more. I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, And 
you go through that many questions. First of all, we have our main topics, you know, anywhere between, you know, three to six main topics. If you include off the tops, anywhere between four and eight topics we cover per day. Then we get into 20 to 40 questions of topics like that come in the live questions part. And you do that every single day. I mean, it doesn't leave a lot of room for topics that I would like to cover that never comes up, you know? I mean, obviously, I, I love when people write in tech questions, like I want to ask about certain microphones or want to talk about switching gear or monitors or cameras. Or I, I always get a kick out of that, but we still get those questions too. Um, yeah, man, I, I, I think with just so many topics and questions we get every day, I think we do get a chance to get through most of the ones that I would want to talk about. I can't really think of many off the top of my head that I really wish we would talk about this, but it doesn't come up, you know? Uh, I really can't think of one. And maybe I'm just really lucky that way. I think I'm really, really lucky that way. Just as I am lucky to have viewers like you who would support our channel like you just did on that level, dude. So thank you so much for that. And thanks for bringing up my old analogy with the limping buffalo. I appreciate that very much, man. Thank you again. All right. Next up, uh, Van Helsing writes. Van Helsing's underrated rights. Hey, John, love the show. Thank you so much, dude. It doesn't really sound like you actually want HBO Max all that badly. If all that's holding you back is an extra click through Hulu, it's more than just one click. Anyway, if I used Roku, I'd have jumped on that opportunity so fast. No, listen, I'm sorry. I've had people writing in and saying that, but no. Listen, if you want me as your customer, if having me as your customer is important to you, then you will do what you need to do to ensure that I will have the easiest, most pleasant, and most convenient experience engaging with your product. So that means if you're HBO Max and you want to reach out to the 70% of streamers who either use Roku or Amazon Fire Stick, that, those two devices represent 70% of the people who stream their home entertainment. 70%. If we are important to you, then you will do what you need to do to ensure that us being your customers and paying you money every month, you will ensure that you're going to give us an experience that is the most convenient, easiest, and most pleasant user experience possible. And if I, as a potential customer, am not important enough to you to do that, then you don't need me as a customer. It's just that simple. It's just, for me, it's just that simple. So for Peacock, and this goes for both Peacock and HBO Max, if I'm not important enough to you to do what you need to do to give me the easiest, most convenient, and most pleasant experience engaging with your service, if I'm not important enough to you to do that, i.e. making sure that your product and service is on Roku, to make sure your product and your service is on Amazon Firestick, if you're saying to me, I'm not important enough for you, to do what you need to do to give me that easy, most convenient and most pleasant user experience possible. If I'm not important enough for you to do that, then I don't need to be a customer of yours. Just that simple. It's just that simple. I, it, the onus should not be on me as the consumer to have to jump through hoops just to get to your thing. I, I, I'll tell you what, cause I did that once before. And this is what made me swear it off. I used to get stars through the Amazon Prime app. But it just became a bit of a pain in the ass. A completely first world problem. Make no mistake about it. Total first world problem. Absolutely. But 
you know, so when I wanted to watch, say, Ray Donovan on, I think it was Ray, stars that Ray Donovan was on. I think it was stars. A anyway, stars or Showtime or one of the two. Instead of just having the app, I had to get show. I think it was Showtime, actually. I had to get Showtime through the Amazon thing. And I just remember it just being jumping through. So I had to open up the Amazon Fire app. Then I had to go to other apps. Then I had to select Showtime. And then the Showtime menu came up. And then I had to go in and find what I wanted to watch for Ray Donovan. And I just remember thinking, this: if I'm paying for this, this shouldn't be my experience. Because I'm paying for another service that, boom, I open my Roku. There is my app. Right there. Click and I'm, I'm, I'm engaged with the service. I shouldn't have to, as a consumer, jump through these hoops just to get to your content. Again, it's not the end of the world and it's totally a first world problem, absolutely is, but all these other services do whatever it is they need to do to give me as their customer the most convenient, easy, and pleasant experience to engage with their content. That means turning on my TV and there's the app right there. And I'm not saying any of you have to agree with me. You don't. But again, the bottom line to me is if HBO Max says that I, as a potential customer, am not important enough to them to do what they need to do to make sure that they are available on Roku in an easy, pleasant, and convenient experience, then they're not important enough for me to pay them money every month. Just that simple. Now, all that is being said, they will be on Roku. Make no mistake about it. HBO Max will be on Roku. It will be on Amazon Fire Stick. They will make a deal at some point. It, it will happen. <clears throat> and then I'll just be able to transfer my HBO Now membership over to the HBO Max thing and everything will be well in the world and we'll all be happy and good. But, and, and on, by the way, on top of all that, what does HBO Max have right now that I have to have HBO Max right now to go and watch it? What what brand new piece of content do they have that's exclusive to HBO Max that I need to run out and watch right now? Nothing. They got nothing that I have to engage with right now. Not like when, like, say, you know, uh, a Disney Plus launched and they had Mandalorian day one, right? I mean, that was important. They don't really have anything yet. They will. They totally will, but they don't yet. So... Yeah, man, to me, it's about who has, who is the onus on? Should the onus be on me to jump through hoops, to be willing to jump through the hoops that I need to jump through in order to get to their content? Or should the onus be on them to give me the best experience? Maybe you disagree, but I think the onus is on them to make sure I have the best experience. As a paying customer, because remember, we're not talking about a free service. As a paying customer, I don't think it's unreasonable for us to say, hey, we're the paying customers. The onus is on you to give us the experience. The onus isn't on us to find a way to get to your experience. The onus is on you to give us that experience. Anyway, that's just kind of my take on that, Van Helsing. I see what you're saying. I totally do. And I think you raise a valid point. But again, from my point of view, if you're asking us to pay you money every month, then the responsibility is on you to give us the easiest, most convenient, most pleasant experience. Shouldn't be on me to have to hunt around for your content. That's just my way of thinking at any rate. Anyway, Alan Dale writes, one of two. I went to my local Cineworld, which opened up this weekend. Uh, up uh, Upon entering, uh, there is hand sanitizers in the foyer. The concession stands has screens 
uh, over the counters and all the staff were wearing masks. Not all customers were wearing masks, but I had mine on out of courtesy. When I took my seat, I removed my mask. Surprise, there was about 50 people uh, to watch Empire Strikes Back. Was the first time since 1980 I've seen it in the theater. Really enjoyed it, uh, even though I've seen it lots of times. Good to be back. And man, that's awesome. Like Again, being able to go to the theaters... Uh, and I'm glad you had that experience, Alan, where you could go to the theaters and watch movies as they were meant to be watched again on the big screen. Probably movies you never thought you'd be able to see on the big screen again. That is awesome. For me, and everybody's going to have their own personal line where they draw their line personally. And so just for me personally, I'm not saying other people have to do this. I'm just saying for me personally, I know Ann and I have talked about this. We're not going to go to, to any movie theater that doesn't require people to wear to wear masks as they come into the theater until they get to their seats. Now, right now, Ann and I will go to restaurants where people don't have to have masks on in their seats. If their seats are separated by six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 feet from us, then we're good with that. They're at their seat, not wearing a mask. They're uh, socially distant from us. We're fine with that. But we won't go to a restaurant right now. And again, I'm not saying other people have to have the same line that we do, but we won't go to a restaurant that doesn't require people to have a mask while they're in the restaurant, unless they're at their seat. I'm going to have the same kind of approach personally to movie theaters. If a movie theater will not require everybody coming into the door to have their masks on at all times, other than when they're sitting in their seat and eating their popcorn and soda, whatever, then I'm just personally not going to that theater. I'm not calling for a boycott. I'm not saying other people should do that. I'm just saying that's our personal choice. So, But I'm glad you, you had a chance to do that, and I'm glad you enjoyed your experience, dude. All right, next up. Josh A writes, one of three. Hey, what's the coolest cameo slash Easter egg you've ever noticed in a film? Here's mine. Me and the girlfriend, we watched Guardians of the Galaxy. After I said, wait, did Jaden Gunn just rip off Farscape? I, I didn't think it was all that similar to Farscape, to be honest. I mean, there are some similarities. I didn't think it was that bad. Um, the brilliant 2000 sci-fi show for two hours. Of course, she said, WTF is Farscape. So we turned to volume two. Uh, lo and behold, 20 minutes in, I noticed the Golden Admiral with uh, Aisha is played by Farscape star Ben uh, Broder. I had no idea. I had no idea about that. In his scenes, he is doing an Empire-ish Brit accents identical to the one he did in an episode of Farscape. Uh, when his character impersonates an enemy general, I lost my shit at this point. A Google search confirmed it all. Gunn loved the show and it influenced his Guardians of the Galaxy script as much as the comics did. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I mean, it very well maybe. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying I I've never heard anything that backs that up. Anyway, Gunn and I are quite the nerds because that's some, some obscure shit, LOL. Um... I mean, I don't know about, like, you're talking about, like, the best little cameos. I don't know if I can think of one. I mean, this is something I'd have to sit down and think about for a while. There's not a couple of, of like, really obscure ones that jump off the top of my head. I would have to think about that for a bit. But I think my favorite all-time cameo is probably still the Stan Lee cameo in Deadpool. I think that's probably still my favorite cameo when he plays a strip, when Stanley is a strip club DJ, you know, you can't buy love, but you can rent it for $20 a song or, or something along those lines, right? Stanley as a strip club DJ, probably, probably, I mean, maybe if I think about it for a few days, I'll come up with something else, else to replace that. But off the top of my head, the one to me that still stands out is Stanley as a strip club DJ. I, I mean, I still laugh 
myself sick when I watch Deadpool and that scene comes up. And it's just the way he says it too, right? He says it so perfectly. You can't buy love, but you can rent it. I mean, I just lose my mind whenever I hear that line. So that's the one that stands out to me, Josh. Anyway, I'm glad you were able to pick that one out of the crowd too, man. That's a good one. All right. An anonymous viewer writes, saw, <laughs> pardon me, saw Empire Strikes Back in theaters for the first time yesterday. It was glorious. That's, I mean, we're hearing a lot of, a lot of the theaters that are opening up are going with an Empire Strikes Back as one of their first films, which is great. And hearing all these people who are watching it on the big screen for the first time is awesome. All right, Frankie G, a Patreon supporter. Thank you for being a Patreon supporter, Frankie. Writes in, R.I.P. Wilford Brimley. Favorite performance, absence of malice, however, most known for Cocoon. I'll tell you what, and yes, Wilford Brimley passed away uh, this week uh, at the age of 86. I was shocked to find out he was only 86, to be honest with you. But he passed away. Honestly, when I think of Wilford Brimley, I don't think of Cocoon. And I don't think of the diabetes commercials. And I don't think of the Quaker Oats commercials. I'll tell you the two things that jump to my mind immediately when I think of Wilford Brimley. I think of the Ewoks television movie. I think of Wilford Brimley. (laughs) And I think of one of the most underrated great action films of all time, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. For whatever reason, when I think of Wilford Brimley, those are the films. And of course, I understand people thinking Cocoon and a lot of the other films that he appeared in, obviously. But the two for me, I go to that Ewoks television movie and I go to uh, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. By the way, that movie was based on a series of novels called The Destroyer. And if you have a chance, if you haven't seen Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, it's a little dated now, but I highly recommend checking it out. It's got one of the great characters of all time named Chun in it, who's this Korean master who has to teach Remo Williams how to how to fight and everything. Completely non-PC, completely whatever, but Chun is one of the great kids. Hilarious. Every time he opens his mouth, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. But it's also uh, freaking hilarious. If you get a chance to watch it. But yeah, we, we lost Wilford Brimley, one of the great faces and voices you know, of the movies. And we lost, and I believe he was 86 years old. Thanks for bringing that one up, Frankie. Taki 75 writes, uh, more favorite characters, uh, Lee Van Cleef, uh, character actors. You have James Cronwell. That'll do pig. Uh, Sam Elliott, who was of course in like just recently in, um, got nominated for Academy Award, I believe in, uh, uh the, the, uh, stars born. I, I believe he got nominated for Academy Award. In that. Anyway, Ben Johnson, George Sanders, John C. Riley, Donald, uh, Donald, uh, Pleasance, uh, Peter Ustinoff. I love Peter Ustinoff. Harvey Keitel. I don't know if I count Harvey as a character actor. Anyway, Ron Perlman, Ving Rhames, Alfred Molina. We were talking about him the other day with Spider-Man. Cole Meany, beam me up. Uh, Richard Jenkins, who we talk about all the time. And Lance Hendrickson is a big popular one with a lot of people, particularly in a lot of genre content. That's a nice uh, list, Tacky. That is a nice list. Yeah, and Cole Meany, I remember because he was in Star Trek uh, The Next Generation. And I think he was the first guy who transferred over from Star Trek Next Generation to Deep Space Nine. And I think he was the first one to do it, like before the Worf character did. And then he's, he was in Air Force One, I believe, as well. The same actor, Colmini, I believe he's in Air Force One. Anyway, I really liked it. That's a nice list, Tacky. Well done. Um, let's see here. Next up, Ryan Loner writes, 
One of my favorite underrated Lord of the Rings scenes is Bilbo uh, taking Gandalf's hat and staff with totally seamless scale shifting between the actors. I distinctly remember thinking in the theater, wait, did they just, holy crap, listen, I'll tell you what, the way they did forced perspective camera shooting in Lord of the Rings was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable they did that forced perspective stuff. It was crazy. And yes, knowing how they did it, Sometimes when you know how they do something in a movie, it takes away from some of the magic. For me, knowing how they did it actually added to the wonder of it. When you see like little things like that transition, that's a great observation, Ryan. All right, GQ writes, I just saw for the third time Training Day. Isn't Ethan Hawke the most underrated actor or is Denzel that good? Well, no, Ethan Hawke gets a lot of Oscar love. I mean, I, he's been nominated for several Oscars, I believe. Let me, let me just pull this up here. Uh, Handsome Hawke. Um... Uh, he will always be Handsome Hawk to me. Uh, Handsome Hawk has been nominated for four Oscars. He was nominated. He's never won. He was nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor in Training Day. So he got an Academy Award nomination for that. Um, he got nominated as a writer for Before Sunset. He was nominated for writer again for Before Midnight, and then he was nominated for Best Acting, uh, Best Actor in a Supporting Role in Boyhood. So he's been nominated for a couple of Writing Academy Awards, a couple of Acting nominations, including Training Day. So it's it's hard to say he was, you know, um, underrated when he got an Academy Award nomination for it. But listen, yeah, people think Training Day, and they think of Denzel Washington, and Denzel did win the Academy Award for that film. So I could totally see where you're coming from on that, but. Um, but look again, it's like, um, oh, who, what's the name of the actor again? Why am I freezing on his name? Um, the name of the actor in there will be blood Paul Dano. It's like Paul Dano and there will be blood. Paul Dano was incredible in there will be blood. But when everybody talks about there will be blood, you talk about Daniel day Lewis. Cause that might arguably be maybe the best leading performance by a male actor in any movie ever. So yeah, maybe there's a little bit of being overlooked for for Handsome Hawk, but but I but he still got an Academy Award nomination, which is pretty good. All right, David Crabtree writes. Some we only got time for another question or two, guys. Uh, some notable movies to make us feel old. Turning ten years old this week. The other guys. Yeah, that one feels like it was about ten years ago. Yeah, that was fine. Um, uh, the other guys. Turning twenty. Coyote Ugly. Oh my God, that's turning twenty. Remember Piper Parabo in that? Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, Hollow Man. Uh, with Kevin Bacon and Space Cowboys with Clint Eastwood uh, and Turning 30, Young Guns 2, any movie stand out for you? I had such a Piper Parabo crush. Oh, God, who didn't have a crush on Piper Parabo? Who did not have a crush on her? And then she went on to have that. She had a TV series that ran that had a pretty successful run on the USA Network. Some secret agent, uh, some some agent show. And I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But I really I, I mean, I was like everybody else. Everybody had a crush on Piper Parabo back in the day man everybody had a crush on her absolutely the one that really stands out to me though is space cowboys um clint eastwood james garner uh uh i was about to say dan not not dan day lewis um uh why am i forgetting his name anyway, uh donald sutherland um and oh who was the fourth he was the guy from captain america why am i for james Earl jones not james Earl jones um uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Lee Jones. So yeah, yeah. Clint Eastwood, uh, James Garner, uh, Donald Sutherland, Tommy Lee Jones. That was a fun little movie. I like space Cowboys very much. That, that one turns 20. Unbelievable. That one turns 20. Um, you know, what's funny. 
they were all supposed to be these old men in that movie. And that was 20 years ago. And I think they're other than James Garner. They're all still with us, which is kind of great and amazing in that way. All right. Final question of the day, guys, comes to us from Optimus Prime Rib, who writes, uh, we've heard of movies that are so bad they're good. But what would be an example of a movie that's so good it's bad? Like what could cause something like that to happen? If anything, all specs, all all aspects are so calculated spot on that it feels artificial. Well, then it wouldn't be good. I honestly can't think of a movie that's so good. It's bad. You know what I mean? Because if something did something overly too much, well, then that would have prevented it from being good in the first place. There is too much of a good thing, particularly in filmmaking, whatever. So yeah, we can probably think of a lot of movies. This is an interesting question. Optimus. This is an interesting question. We can think of a lot of films that are so bad that they're kind of enjoyable, but I can't think of, I can't think of one off the top of my head that's so good that it's actually bad, but maybe that's just me. Hey, listen, there are still a few questions to come. We have Russell Amador, uh, Drizzy Moose, um, and a few others on the way up. Do not worry, guys. We will start off the open questions part of tomorrow's show with your questions. So we're leaving off right now, but we'll get to yours right off the bat when we start up tomorrow. All right, guys, that'll do it. For today's installment of the John Campia Show, thank you guys so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Special thanks to all you guys who sent in the live questions. Number one, because you gave us great fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported this channel while you did it. And all of us here, thank you very much for that. That will do it for me for now, guys. Stay smart. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Take care of the people around you. My name is John Campia. And until next time, bye-bye.